This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, everyone. It's Ken. Before we start, I want to share some exciting news. We've paired with Midas Touch, so you can now watch these interviews on YouTube. Just search for the Midas Touch YouTube channel or click the link in the show description. Thanks and enjoy the episode. When all this is said and done, what I'm concerned about is that neo-Nazi right guy then thinking that they've knocked out Putin, eliminating the kind of liberal uh, factions, and then forget about like a nationalist government like Putin. You have kind of another neo-Nazi regime come to power. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. My guest today is Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Venman, an Army vet and former director for European Affairs for the National Security Council. In October of 2019, Lieutenant Colonel Venman was subpoenaed by Congress as part of the impeachment proceeding against President Trump. His testimony revealed that the president threatened to withhold vital assistance to Ukraine until that country's leader, Volodymyr Zelensky, agreed to investigate Joe Biden. Alex, it is great to talk to you again. Thanks for joining me here. Hey, thanks for having me on, Ken. I want to go back to that uh, that infamous call uh, or that perfect call, as uh, as some have characterized it. Did you ever imagine uh, when you chose to report what you'd heard Did you run worst case scenarios through your head? Did you think we could possibly be where we are today with the Ukrainian people fighting for their right to exist? Or were you simply acting on principle, reporting what you'd heard because you knew what the president had done was wrong? It was mainly the latter. Mainly I was uh, reporting what I knew was wrong. Uh, It was kind of my my duty to uh, try to make, as we call the military, you know, make uh, uh, correction, make on-the-spot correction, don't walk by mistake. Uh, so that was certainly part of it in terms of the fact that, you know, I knew what what I had to do with with absolute clarity. But I also was the director for European Affairs. I understood the stakes um, and what might uh, what, what this might mean for a U.S. national security, what it would mean for uh, regional stability, and uh, that this kind of fix, this kind of corruption could play out in worst case scenario, I, frankly, this scenario is beyond any of the worst case scenarios that I'd kind of j- quickly ran through my mind. But it could play out uh, where Russia thought Ukraine was vulnerable. It was the time to strike. Um, whatever that meant, that didn't necessarily mean at the time full scale war. But, you know, that was the, the kind of the, the fear in the back of my mind that it meant that the uh, U.S. president could be bought for uh, enabling his corruption by by the Russians, it meant that it could politicize a national security issue that I'd been working diligently to keep out of the political sphere as this corrupt scheme was unfolding, and you know various kind of evildoers were you know were attempting to interfere in in good policy making 
and that I saw all these things kind of unfolding. And I also, in in certain ways, understood some, you know, maybe the kind of the, the tip of the iceberg in terms of some personal risk associated with this that um, very quickly, you know, I, I ended up being the target of um, retaliation within the White House uh, because I wasn't seen as loyal anymore. And the months between the phone call, that July 25th phone call and testifying in front of Congress at the end of October, I mean, I saw I had a chance, a great deal of opportunity to ponder what could have possibly unfolded. And, you know, maybe I could have followed the advice. Uh, I It was against, or, you know, every kind of fiber of my being, but my attorneys would have been much more comfortable if I followed their advice and was a reluctant witness and you know, provided kind of uh, yes or no answers and uh, mi- attempted to minimize my own risk or uh, use the lifeline of not testifying, you know, although, uh, because the president, while he didn't forbid me from testifying, there was no prohibition. You know, it was indicated that there would be top cover for people that chose not to do that. I mean, it was a active kind of uh, with, with a, a great deal of forethought if not in the immediate report, certainly by the time I testified in front of Congress uh, with understanding you know, the stakes and, and so forth. I reread your book, Here Right Matters, yesterday, uh, getting ready for this interview, and this passage just jumped off the page at me. You wrote, if you ignored and denied what you knew about the evil incompetence of the system, never questioned authority and sucked up to the right people, you could continue to prosper. But if you couldn't ignore and deny what you knew, if your moral compass was too true for that, you faced a number of prospects, none of them good. I think most listeners might think you were describing the Trump administration. You were actually describing the conditions in Soviet-dominated Ukraine that your father, an engineer in the bureaucracy, had to deal with. The similarities, and I'm sure the way you characterize them is it's not an accident. Uh, your, your framing of them that way, right? Exactly. I think that's right. I mean, you, you're, you could easily take it as the Trump administration versus uh, the Soviet union. In fact, I think, you know, the Trump administration is kind of the worst case, um, scenario in terms of, uh, governance, retaliation, corruption, self-service and things of that nature. But I don't think it would be that much easier if it was any other administration stepping forward, challenging the president on something uh, criminal or wrong. The the stakes for any whistleblower are extremely high. I mean, it's something, frankly, I, I deal with to this day that I'm still radioactive. My twin brother, is, this is his first day on active, uh, off of active duty. Uh, yesterday was his last day. In a lot of ways, he validated my thinking on the fact that th- there was no prospects for a continued career in the, in the military, which attempts to try to be apolitical, but uh, it's also quite political in the jockeying and the bureaucracy. And um, having a Vinman, uh, either me or my twin brother, for that matter, in, in the active duty ranks was too dangerous. And he was, he was marginalized just like I was. So it's, I guess the point that I'm, tr- I'm making is that it's dangerous to act on principle, you know, to exercise moral courage in general, it's more dangerous in a Trump authoritarian-like world. uh, And it certainly resembles maybe an authoritarian regime. But the differences are that, you know, in an authoritarian regime, I I would have been killed. You know, I would have like ended up falling out of a a hospital window or something like uh, 
one of the Russian oligarchs did today. So, yeah. I think it was the, the chairman of the board of, of Luke Oil got exactly right. as they say. Um, yes. Fell out of a hospital window. Uh, obviously, that fate did not befall you, but you, you received just an avalanche of, of harassment, not just the random online kind, uh, but targeted harassment from government officials. And you chose to fight back against that as well. Are you able to give us an update on the, mm-hmm. the lawsuit that you filed? Sure. So, I mean, it's uh, harassment, intimidation, retaliation are basically the kind of the the hallmarks of a mafia organization and um, uh, the Trump administration for folks that are perceived to run against the president's interests. As a result of being forced out of the military and ending a, uh, frankly, a a successful prospective military career where I would have gone on and and to do other good things for this country, I would hope, I basically recognized that there was no opportunity. We have to remember that the environment was the administration, the Trump administration blocked my promotion to colonel for many months. You have the president's chief of staff on the record saying this guy will not get promoted, being attacked uh, and vilified by the Trump administration, the right wing media, which is frankly the centerpiece of that is Fox News and the Senate, which has to also um, provide consent to the promotion. There was really kind of no prospects and I would have been holding up a, a bunch of other officers from being promoted. So um, I, I filed the lawsuit. Uh, we're now at the stage where just a couple of days ago, the defendants all were given an opportunity and afforded an opportunity to respond to the claim. Um, they made their motions to dismiss. We made a counter motion uh, uh, substantiating why this this case should move forward. They had a chance to respond. Now it's in the, in the, in the court's hands, in the judge's hands to take action. But where, frankly, for me, uh, you know, success would be over the course of the next couple of months, sooner rather than later, there's a discovery and there's an opportunity to dig into the White House actions, uh, the communications. You know, we know that they were quite sloppy in their criming and, frankly, get a chance to see how they behaved. And the whole idea is to brush back on all these kind of henchmen that believe they could act with impunity without suffering consequences, that there are consequences they could in, in a court and uh, really kind of undermine the ability of, uh, of these types of figures to go after officials uh, that are conducting their, their duties. You described them as henchmen. Uh, even the DOD was cowed by, uh, by the folks going after you. Uh, the Pentagon didn't exactly have your back on this. And looking at how your brother was treated as well, it just it has to strike you as unbelievably unfair that your twin brother is unceremoniously retired, a rank below you deserves, while someone like mm-hmm. um, Mike Flynn's brother is promoted. Yeah, it, it is. A, it's a tough uh, pill to swallow. The fact is, I will. will the story hasn't been fully written. Uh, I think this is kind of just an, another chapter. Uh, and uh, to a T, the senior military um, leaders that were involved in this would swear up and down that they did everything they could. They provided, they attempted to secure, they attempted to um, 
act in a way that wouldn't have uh, negatively affected uh, my career. But in fact, that's clearly not the case. My twin brother that just happens to share a last name and and a face, he was uh, ostracized also. These folks are going to have to live with with the consequences of their actions. They're, you know, they built a career on um, values. I don't think this is one of those things, uh, adhering to army values. I don't think this is one of those things they're going to look fondly back on. Uh, And uh, I think occasionally they'll be reminded of the fact that they uh, felt short of their, their obligations as leaders. I want to talk about the stakes that you perceived when you put your, your career on the line and possibly your, your life on the line. Uh, And your, your brother was, was asked to do the same. It was at a time when Russian revanchism was, was on the rise when we had, a willing or maybe an unwitting uh, agent of Putin in the White House and a lonely beacon of democracy in Volodymyr Zelensky begging for help. You, you raised the flag long before most people realized the dangers. And just a couple of days before the invasion, you tweeted this out. Uh, you wrote, a great deal of the GOP leadership will have blood on their hands. And this is before the tanks rolled. They're fanning flames, encouraging Putin to attack Ukraine. Putin has, and his regime perceive opportunities because such fools suggest the U.S. is weak, divided, and distracted. That perfect call in which the leader of Ukraine was essentially blackmailed over an investigation into Joe Biden had geopolitical strategic ramifications and the lives of hundreds of thousands uh, at stake. Mm. And we see that playing out now. As a Ukrainian American, as an American first and foremost, though, how do you think about the years that have passed since that call and all that has unfolded because of President Trump's complicity? It's one of those things that, if, you know, they're, these are way above my pay grade, uh, way outside of my, my uh, span of control. But I, it's one of those things that I, I keep asking myself, could I have done more? What more could I have done? You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm going to be turning in my doctoral dissertation on U.S. Uh, relations to, uh, with Ukraine since 1991. So I'm, I'm looking at the kind of the breadth of the 30 years leading up to this major escalation in 2022, the war started in 2014. And I could tick off in my head how we moved towards this confrontation. Multiple data points in the 2000s, we didn't do enough after Russia's uh, attempts to interfere in Ukrainian elections in 2004, didn't do enough when Russia basically said it's going to use all means to establish a privileged sphere of influence, then it attacked Georgia, then 2014, all sorts of, they attacked our own elections here in the US in 2016. We didn't do enough along the way, but if we see those milestones as kind of like meaningful points in the path towards this war, I would say the Trump administration as a whole was a leap. It was a surge towards a confrontation, both in this war that Ukraine is paying the price for, but frankly, quite possibly a war that the U.S. is going to be directly involved in. It is. This is. This war is likely to go on for for my, for quite a few more months, and with the significant prospects of spillover, and that is Trump's fault. That is the Republicans' fault that enabled Trump. That 
suggested that the U.S. Was, was weak and distracted, that suggested that we were going to not live up to the rhetoric of ironclad support for Ukraine. That phone call set off a, a series of events that precipitated Putin's invasion in 2022. I would say it was a major milestone in Putin thinking, okay, the U.S. is not going to be there. And what it tells, what we should we should take from this episode is that, you know, we, we don't determine outcomes around the world. We weren't able to determine outcomes in Afghanistan. But what we do matters uh, because other people listen. And when the politicians, uh, the Republicans, chose to look the other way, uh, when the president was, you know, apparently corrupt, attempted to extort a, a strategic partner for an investigation and wasn't held accountable, when the Republican Party then proceeds to shift their views on um, pushing back on Russian aggression, pushing back on uh, the surging authoritarianism, other places around the world pay attention. You can't have uh, you know, leadership, whether that's former Secretary Pompeo or um, you know, various like Tucker Carlson, who's the, who's the mouthpiece for the Republicans, or any number of Republican figures, Ron Johnson running for office, say something and then believe that it's just politics that doesn't mean anything. It has real-world implications. It has real-world consequences. And frankly, uh, many people are suffering because of these uh, folks. Terrible leadership, self-service, I don't even know. I mean, there's all sorts of negative, uh, profane things to be said, but we'll just leave it at that. Well, Tucker Carlson gets almost as much airtime in Russia on state TV there as he gets on on Fox News. I mean, aiding and abetting the enemy is is a real yeah. thing. He should be getting royalties or something. I hope they're paying him. I mean, for all the time <laughs> that he gets on there. Yeah. Um, remind people why we shouldn't think of this as some remote regional conflict. I think before yeah. the Ukraine war, most Americans probably didn't realize, most probably don't still, that it's the largest country in Europe holding the line against the largest country by landmass, period. I mean, this is not some small, isolated conflict. Yeah. It has the potential to flare up. Sure. So I think, you know, frankly, I think most of your listeners get it at this point because uh, the polling that I've seen come out uh, says that 80% of the American public is behind Ukraine. 76% of the public uh, believes that there should be more sanctions and 72% of the public wants to arm Ukraine more heavily. We don't agree on anything in the United States, but you have that larger kind of a, a, a support base for Ukraine, people get it. But you made, made one of the points, the geographic point, which is this, just in terms of like earth land masses, the amount of the earth that's involved in a war right now is massive. I think frankly, you know, the last time this much of a land mass was at war was World War II, where you had this much territory in confrontation with each other. Besides that, uh, Russia and Ukraine control a massive amount of uh, foodstuffs that's really caused some massive disruptions, frankly, you know, toppled some governments like in Sri Lanka. Fortunately, uh, there was enough pressure put on Russia where some of those foodstuffs uh, were uh, transit for the food out of wheats and sunflower oil, which about 80% of sunflower oil comes from Ukraine and uh, corn is now being distributed far below the kind of the traditional thresholds of like 
15 Supermax tankers a day. It's, I think the high point's been six or something like that. I could be wrong on the statistics, frankly, I don't recall. But it sounds right to me from what I remember. Uh, it's a much, much higher throughput. So there's not nearly enough coming through, but there's something. So people aren't going to be starving around the world, at least, because uh, Russia wants to use that as a means to, to apply pressure on Ukraine to end the war. So that's another one. Oil, gas, that had a direct impact on U.S. pocketbooks because Russia has disrupted the oil and gas flows. It's caused a huge amount of inflation in prices. Of course, the Biden administration has been quite effective in, in tamping down on that, which is pretty amazing if you think about it. I don't think anybody, frankly, thought that the U.S., either by releasing strategic reserves or you know using diplomacy to have other countries uh, step up and increase their production, would have this significant effect. It's had a pretty darn effect, significant effect. We're talking about like more than a 25% decrease in prices uh, uh, for gasoline. That's another area. But it's also the second largest military in the world, second most powerful, correction. By size, I mean, it's, it's pretty, especially with this latest increase in, in uh, force structure that they're looking for, it's probably right up there, uh, right behind China. But it's got the uh, largest nuclear arsenal in the world. And the prospects of a spillover um, in Russia's frustration or an accident or miscalculation or an attack on this uh, nuclear power plant in Ukraine, all these things have a, will have a direct impact on U.S. security. will have a direct impact on European security and our, that Europe is our, our most important uh, partner, trading partner, bedrock of our security through NATO and so forth. So yes, this has direct implications and relevance. And then the last thing I'll mention is we tend to not do very well with European wars, large European wars. They tend to drag us in. And we ha- we've had a couple of precedents for that. Yes, yes. Back-to-back champs, but it, at some cost, yep. we should note. Uh, you're doing analysis now for CNN. Can you bring us up to date on the tactical situation inside Ukraine, because it has been shifting rapidly, especially around Kherson. Sure. So I'm I'm basically fortunate, and I don't have to. I didn't. I'm not on anybody's team. On uh, I'm on. Uh, I'm an independent agent. Uh, you know, being able to talk to CNN and MSNBC, NBC. But um, I had just had a trip there, uh, so I got. It's been a week back from from Ukraine, a little bit more than a week back, and I learned some interesting things. First of all. This war is likely to be longer uh, than I was suspecting before I went to Ukraine. One of the things I learned about is that while Russia has taken devastating losses, some formations have been depleted to 50% strength. Ukraine's also taken significant losses. Um, They've taken about 30% or more losses in their uh, company-grade officers, in their lieutenants and captains. Those are the folks that lead the tactical formations that achieve battlefield successes that stack up to operational and strategic successes. It's hard for, to operate without having kind of uh, small unit leadership. And you invest a lot of time, you invest five years in a lieutenant, you invest close to 10 years in a captain. So that's a generation of officers that, that, that have been wiped out. I think Ukraine has a reasonable chance of achieving some successes in, in Kherson. I would put it at a coin flip as to whether they're going to be able to liberate that area, um, mainly because of these uh, shortfalls in personnel and combat power. We've also largely equipped Ukraine to to hold and not to win. So our strategy is not to give them everything they need in order to win the war against Russia. It's to wear down the Russians and 
force the Russians to negotiate, which is a recipe for disaster, frankly, because that means a long war, a long war that, as we've discussed, has every possibility of spilling over. So it's just a deeply flawed kind of approach to this critical crisis that could become an existential uh, crisis to the U.S. Uh, But they have a reasonable chance of success. If they're on the winning side of that coin flip, they'll be able to liberate the region of Kherson. They'll be able to push the Russians um, basically across to this massive river, kind of looks like the Mississippi at some wide points. And that's basically an impenetrable obstacle for the Russians once they've been kicked across to the, the south side of the river. What that means practically is that Ukraine's port city of Odessa is no longer under threat. Mykolaiv, another major city, is no longer under threat. Krivirig, which is the uh, President Zelensky's hometown, an industrial town, is no longer under threat. But more importantly, it gives the Ukrainians uh, additional room to push up their high Mars and punish Russian forces deeper. It allows Ukraine to establish minimal force structure on the river because it doesn't take that much to defend it. I mean, you'll see those guys coming, you know, from a long ways away and you could have some reserve units come in and, you know, plaster them while they're in the water. And then they could take all that combat power there, the brigades and brigades, and shift them to liberating territory around Kharkiv in the east. You know, you could then, frankly, see legitimately a a broader Russian collapse uh, in that kind of scenario. So I think it's way too close to call. I think there's a reasonable chance of success. It's the last real prospect for a short war. If the Ukrainians cannot do this, this is going to play out over the course of an, you know, maybe up to another year, as far as I can see, uh, through the winter where hostilities to kind of decrease a little bit, through a spring and summer offensive and things of that nature. But if the Ukrainians are successful, Russia might be compelled to sue for peace. At the same time, we have to, it doesn't, it doesn't stop just because the Ukrainians um, don't hold that territory. They'll be just a lot of attritional warfare, positional warfare, and meanwhile, a lot more unrest. The other thing I learned in um, when I was in Ukraine is that there are all sorts of weird kind of forces assembling to push back on the Putin regime. Like I had this interesting lunch interaction with a contact of mine uh, who's kind of on the left side of the spectrum, you know, socialist, former government official, um, Russian government official in exile sitting across the table from like a inveterate neo-Nazi, completely opposite ends of the spectrum. And they're basically coming up with, you know, they're talking about plans to put pressure on uh, Putin's regime internally. And the way they, they intend to do that is basically violent attacks. So these fire bombings of like the military recruiting stations, all these types of things are, are likely to kind of keep unfolding, as well as economic pressure from sanctions, as well as dealing with the consequences of uh, thousands and thousands of casualties. So this is just going to get more and more difficult, more and more complex. So those research uh, facilities and, and, and other industrial centers that are going up in, in flames that we occasionally hear about, those are, those are attacks is, is what, what you're hearing. And, and I guess it suggests that Putin doesn't have as iron of a grip on the country as he would like everyone to believe. What's interesting is that he has a very, very sturdy grip. He has, uh, you know, uh, nearly endless tools of repression, but you also have an equally um, committed opposition that uh, in, especially in Putin's weakness, when the, the Russian military is struggling, 
we'll see some opportunities. And frankly, when all this is said and done, what I'm concerned about is that neo-Nazi right guy then thinking that they've knocked out Putin, eliminating the kind of liberal uh, factions, and then forget about like a nationalist government like Putin. You have kind of another neo-Nazi regime come to power. These are the chains of events that have kind of now started to unwind as a result of a a, um, war between Russia and Ukraine, uh, a war in which... um, it's likely to be uh, not a six-month war, but a year-long war or longer. And with more of these types of things that are hard to forecast, there were plenty of things I forecasted and I've written about, potentially NATO countries just choosing on their own to step in and support Ukraine. Some of that's, A lot of that's happened with regards to weapons, but if Ukraine was under greater pressure, I could see Poland stepping in. You could see a nuclear accident. I couldn't say that I, I thought that uh, Putin would be brought down by kind of violent insurrections. I thought that was a low probability scenario, but maybe it's not as low as I I would have uh, guessed some months back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. I want to pivot to threats to democracy here at home. You probably saw the recent poll that listed that concern as the top voter concern in the run-up to the November elections. I mean, that's shocking in the economic environment we're in. It's shocking after the Dobbs case, which overturned Roe, that Americans are waking up to to the threats to democracy itself. Do you take some reassurance in that result? I do. I, uh, I've i heard for too long and too many people say, especially kind of, you know, some uh, in the political elite spectrum, that this is not what drives uh, the electorate, their kind of uh, kitchen table, bread and butter issues. But somewhere in the back of my mind, I, I didn't, that did not resonate with me. I did not feel that to be true. And I think the American public gets it. And I think that's now been represented in this polling but more importantly, it's been represented in some of these electoral outcomes and these specials. And um, I think there's a, a reasonable possibility that, you know, some of our mutual friends will eat their words uh, with their kind of uh, you know, negative Nancy uh, commentary on, on losing the House. I think there's a reasonable chance that we might be able to, frankly, hang on to the House at this point, uh, get a larger margin. And I think that we could see some extreme candidates. There'll be too many of them that stay in. But we'll see some extreme candidates out of uh, out of government, which will be good, and it'll be probably the death knell for 
I keep wanting, I almost said Vladimir Putin, but I, of course I meant Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I hope you're right there. You're an advisor, a senior advisor to Vote Vets, which came in really big at the last second for one of these candidates uh, that, that you're talking about, Pat Ryan, a uh, fellow Army vet up in New York 19, which really shocked the the political classes. He was supposed to lose, but the voters of the New York 19th came to the defense of democracy, to the defense of, yep. of reproductive rights, of, of freedom more broadly. Uh, Pat, we, we had him on just last week, uh, said that his campaign was a referendum on freedom. Can you talk yep. about your your hopes and your work with vote vets and the coming midterms and what you think is possible? So I think first uh, there's another you know interesting data point. I I, I like information I, I, as the more the the merrier. Um, and I saw an interesting Fox poll actually that said fathers of daughters were increasingly shifting away from the Republican Party, which, you know, white males, uh, but that happen to be fathers of daughters are not, you know, that guaranteed demographic for for MAGA or for the right. So I think that's another thing that we're seeing. We're seeing suburban women. My wife is, uh, you know, active in the suburban women, you know, political action space. She does this uh, suburban women pod, uh, uh, problem podcast uh, yeah, to, I, I, to talk to women. It. We had our co-host Amanda on not long ago. Yeah. So, you know, I see these things coming into force. Uh, with regards to vote vets, frankly, um, I'm a, a, a novice to the political space. The organization's been around for a long time, since 2006. The folks that kind of run it uh, have exceptionally strong relationships. They know what they're doing. They have sharp elbows and um, know uh, how to reach constituencies the whole purpose about Vote Vets is to give veterans a voice like they've given me, um, like they are giving uh, Pat, like we we do when we endorse and support candidates around the country. So I think we it's an excellent effort. We're keenly focused on on the five badass women. Um, you know, it's Abigail Spanberger, Elaine Luria, Alyssa Slotkin, Mikey Sherrill, and uh, Chrissy Houlihan. I think we're actually... I'm increasingly comfortable that we're in good shape there. I'm on the hunt for new prospects. And I actually had a conversation with them today. There's a couple of folks um, that, you know, while they haven't gone so far as to endorse them because they, they're good at, uh, like I said, they're more sophisticated than me. Uh, I like uh, Patrick Schmidt, who's running in Kansas as a 31 year old uh, Navy Intel officer. Um, that's just doing a really terrific grassroots campaign. James Carville has been out a bunch of times supporting him. Uh, Patrick is, um, running in uh, what I think it's Kansas second and his district is, uh, was instrumental to that uh, choice referendum that Kansas had. They voted overwhelmingly. So I, I like, I like him. Um, I'm supporting a Mandela Barnes running against Ron Johnson, a pet rock for me because he attacked me personally. Uh, and he's really quite, I mean, uh, what, what can you say? The guy's just not that bright. I thought it was a kind of, Lack of experience, but it's you know I think I think it's there's something more fundamentally flawed with with him. I like uh, Admiral Franken. Uh, there's a bunch of folks that you know I would like to see get more attention. Of course, would it be wonderful if Marjorie Taylor Greene was unseated by uh, what's or who is our friend uh, there? Um, Marcus. Yes, yes, Marcus Flowers. Yeah. 
um, that would be terrific outcome. I'd like to see a lot of these radical Republican candidates uh, out. But and of course, uh, let me mention Tim Ryan for for those of you out there, because JD Vance would be terrible for this country at the national level. Well, what do you say um, to those listening who see vets on the other side, the J.D. Vance's of the world, the Doug Mastrianos? It's a growing list, and just about every one of them knows better, but they're parroting the big lie. They're saying whatever they think they have to to stay in Trump's good graces and to instigate and provoke the base in a way that is really dangerous to the democracy that they claim to love, that they swore an oath to support and defend. That's the biggest problem right there. I mean, we both, we served in the military. We understand that there are, are flawed people in the military. By and large, it's an amazing organization filled with terrific public servants, selfless public servants, but there are too many self-serving officers, military personnel that would put their own interests ahead of their community's interests or national interests. And that's what we see here. You know, a guy like Doug Mastriano, army colonel, should know better. I think to me, it's like uh, that group of folks, those folks that are part of like the insurrection caucus, those folks that swore an oath to the, to the constitution and then cast it aside for personal gain it's like the apostates or something like that. Those apostates in, in religion are uh, dealt with very, very uh, severely, as we know. I think the fact is that those folks should be held uh, to a higher standard, even higher than other elected public servants. And uh, those should be like, you know, targets number one uh, to unseat for failing to meet their obligations to the public good and to the Constitution. Last question, and I want to use it to plug the book because it is phenomenal, even reading it a second time. Uh, The whole thing reads like an homage to your father, full of, you know, amazing insights and wisdom from him like this one. Don't just start over. Keep starting over. I don't know if he saw what was in your future, uh, but you took it to heart. And I just want to end with that. That amazing message that uh, I'm going to try not to get choked up, but that amazing message that you read to your father during your testimony. Um, You said, Dad, my sitting here today in the U.S. Capitol is proof that you made the right decision 40 years ago to leave the Soviet Union and come here to the United States of America in search of a better life for our family. Do not worry. I will be fine for telling the truth. The question is, do you still believe that right still matters given everything you have been through since then? I do. I think, you know, every now and then I have to uh, interrogate that belief and, uh, you know, question uh, whether I've been wrong. And I come back to the same conclusion. I've had a chance to visit every state of the union, all 50 states. I I think we have a beautiful country filled with uh, wonderful people. Too many of them have been lied to. I think this country is unique and different. Uh, What we do matters here matters around the world. You know, I guess maybe here right matters is, uh, um, is a, uh, aspirational notion also like the more perfect union, you know, it, when, when our uh, founding fathers conceived of a, of this country to establish a more perfect union, I don't think they had any any misconceptions that, um, it was going to be a country that continued to strive towards a more perfect union. So I think it, it, yes, I think here right matters, 
but we also need to be a country where right continues to matter. And, um, you know, any way I could lend my voice to making sure right matters, I do that uh, to the best of my ability. I'm also an optimist, so that, that helps. Same here. Uh, and I have unshakable faith in our ability as, as a country to, to right the ship when it leans too far over. That's a Navy reference. I'm sure you, yep. you Army guys have you. your own. But thank you so much, Alex, for coming on, for lending your voice um, for this past hour. We appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Alex for joining me. Make sure to check out his memoir, Here Right Matters, An American Story. The link is in the show description. You can also find him on Twitter at A. Vindman. Thanks for listening to Burn the Boats. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcasts.com. We're always looking to improve the show. For updates and more, follow us on Twitter at team underscore harbaugh. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Burn the Boats is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Our producer is Declan Roars, and Sean Rolhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Burn the Boats, a podcast about big decisions. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.